Morning, church. Question. If you knew you were about to die, whether it was to be maybe just a few moments, a few weeks, or even if you were given six months, if you knew you were about to die, what would you say? What would you say to your family? What would you say to your children? What would be your last words? We started a series called Last Words, and we're looking at the final words of Jesus on the cross. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, while Jesus is about to die, Jesus, knowing He's going to die, He makes seven statements, 55 words, and we're taking a look at those seven statements. They are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Inspired by the Word of God because God wanted us to know and those Gospel writers wanted us to know that before He dies, Jesus pulls Himself up and He reaches for another breath and He speaks. So last week we looked at the first statement when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And we learned about forgiveness. The forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus from God the forgiveness of sins that we need to be saved, the forgiveness that we need to extend to other people, and even the forgiveness that we need to extend to ourselves. Here's our text today as we look at the second statement. There was a written notice above Jesus which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the second statement. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die with criminals? I mean, it really wasn't an accident. In fact, it was planned. God had planned that centuries before. We read in Isaiah, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Why? Would God allow His Son to die surrounded by criminals, in the midst of criminals? We don't know, but perhaps it was to illustrate the magnitude of sin. Perhaps it was to make a statement about why Jesus came. We even sing songs trying to understand why Jesus died between some criminals. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ruined sinners to reclaim. That's really the only kind of sinners Jesus reclaims, ruined sinners. I mean, let that sink in. 
If Jesus died with the transgressors, and if Jesus died between two criminals, if Jesus died in your place, what does that make us? Criminals. Criminals. But we don't want to think about that. We don't want to consider ourselves as criminals. But that's what we are. Jesus was condemned to the cross, and He took our place, ruined sinners. And a man that takes the place of a condemned sinner... He belongs with criminals. I think this statement from the cross illustrates better than any other, defines better than any other, the grace of God. And Jesus died in the middle. Again, why would Jesus have to die between two with criminals, and why would he have to be in the middle? Well, because Roman tradition said the worst criminal dies in the middle. And to the Romans, Jesus was the worst criminal that day. And in all truthfulness, Jesus was the worst of all sinners that day because He was carrying the weight of your sins and my sins and the sins of the entire world. These two thieves, they're just carrying their own sins. But Jesus, He's carrying the sins of the world. Sins that haven't even been committed yet. Your sins and my sins. And because of our sins and the sins of the world, He died in the middle that day The worst of the criminals. Who were these other two guys? Well, Matthew calls them robbers. Luke uses a stronger word. He says criminals. They were rebels. You could put them in the same category as Barabbas. You remember Barabbas? He was the man released instead of Jesus. And Mark calls him an insurrectionist. Mark said he had committed murder. Paul refers to to Barabbas in Acts 3 as a murderer. Sounds like these three thieves, insurrectionists, were planning a revolt. Sounds like they were trying to overthrow the Roman government and they were caught. And Rome was going to execute them. And along comes Jesus, which was the right time for them. And they rushed him through the trials and they rushed him before Pilate. The Jews wanted him crucified and they released Barabbas and Jesus took his place. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross between criminals, thieves, robbers, insurrectionists. And this is how the scene unfolds with regard to the second statement. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Obviously the people are watching The rulers are sneering, the soldiers are mocking, and Jesus begins to listen to this onslaught of jeering. He saved others, let him save himself. Matthew said those who passed by hurled insults at him. They shook their heads as if Jesus couldn't hear them. He could see them shaking their heads. In the midst midst of all this taunting and jeering, Even the two thieves joined in. Here's what we read in Scripture. Those who passed by hurled insults. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders, they joined in. And those crucified with Him also hurled insults. They heaped insults as if the insults from the ground weren't enough. Now He's getting it from both sides. Not a moment of peace. Not a moment of quiet. Jesus is getting a constant barrage of insults. And here's what the first criminal says. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
Listen, this, this is not a statement of faith. This is a statement of mocking. This is a statement of self-preservation. This man didn't want to die. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but had Jesus honored this man's request, had Jesus saved himself and saved this man, we would have died in our sins. Jesus couldn't honor this request. I hope you're following that. Again, had Jesus honored this request, His sacrifice wouldn't have been perfect. His sacrifice wouldn't have been for us. The purpose of His sacrifice was to shed blood, and had He saved Himself, the blood wouldn't have been shed, and we would have died in our sins. Wow. And think about this. Had Jesus honored this request, Satan would have won. Think about that. His entire life, Satan is going after Jesus because he wants him to change his mission. Satan knows Jesus is going to the cross and he doesn't want him to go. And now he's dying on the cross and Satan is still trying to change that mission. No doubt Satan's working through this criminal. We sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels. That's true. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. Had he done that, we would have died in our sins. Had he rescued and saved himself, we would have died in our sins. Remember what we said last week, even at the cross, Jesus was still aware of his mission and his purpose. He knew he had to die. He knew he had to be our sacrifice. And throughout all of the events of the cross, he knew he must die for all, all of our sins, even in the midst of this criminal making a request. In one of the statements that we'll look at here in a couple of weeks, Jesus will say... It is finished. Had he called 10,000 angels, had he saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to make that statement. And then the other criminal jumps in. And he says, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And you read those words and you're thinking, what happened? Because just a few moments ago, both of them are hurling insults, is what Scripture said. Both of them are jeering and taunting. So what happened? Because this criminal has gone from hurling insults to making an astounding statement. What happened? I don't know. Maybe he's been observing Jesus. Maybe he watched as Jesus was silent through all this abuse. Maybe he listened as Jesus pulled himself up and he heard the first statement, Father, forgive them. We're not sure what happened, but somehow at some point, almost in an instant, something clicks in this one criminal and he makes one of the most incredible leaps of faith in history. At some point during the crucifixion, he realizes this guy's the son of God. And this man who is aware of his deeds and his own crime and his own sins realized he's getting what he deserves, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. An incredible statement of faith. What about you? Can you look at the cross and make the same statement? Can you look at the cross and have the same conviction? Can you look at the cross and be convicted that Jesus is the Son of God? 
I don't know if you've ever heard of the book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I don't know if you know the story behind that book, but Josh McDowell set out to prove that Jesus was a hoax, that Jesus was not the Son of God, and he was looking for evidence to to make the claim that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And yet in his search for truth, one day he realized that Jesus is the truth. What about you? Have you realized, have you come to the conviction that Jesus is the truth? This man realized in his sinfulness that Jesus in his sinlessness is the Son of God. And he said, this man's done nothing wrong, but we are justly punished. It's amazing. This man, this man looks at Jesus covered in blood and covered in sweat and writhing in pain and nailed to a cross and insulted and mocked and jeered. And in the midst of all that, he says, this guy's done nothing wrong. Kind of makes you wonder, because we want to clean Jesus up, and we want to put him in nice white clothes, and we want to comb his hair, and we want him to look real good. And this guy sees Jesus looking real bad and realizes who he is. And then we come to one of the most amazing requests, maybe in all of the Bible. This criminal has the audacity to ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a request. You know what makes this request amazing? This, this man's a robber. He's a thief. He's an insurrectionist. I mean, can, can you, who is this guy anyway? Can you believe he would make such a request? This guy's probably never been to church. He's probably never read any scripture. He's never done anything right in his life. I mean, after all, he's being crucified because he's a thief. And he says, hey, Jesus, will you remember me in your kingdom? He doesn't even ask to be in the kingdom. He just says, will you remember me in your kingdom? He doesn't say, Jesus, take me with you. He doesn't say, Jesus, I want to go with you. He doesn't bargain with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, if you take me, I'll give 10%. Hey, Jesus, I'll start going to church. He doesn't make any bargaining. He just says, will you remember me? I don't know what's more amazing. The fact that this criminal made the request. Or that Jesus honored it. Because Jesus pulls himself up on the cross and he takes a breath and he says, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And we find that amazing. We find that perplexing. We find that almost theologically incorrect. In fact, we struggle with this statement. We, we struggle with the fact that Jesus honored this request. We struggle with the fact that Jesus did more. He did more than just honor the request. He says, I won't just remember you. You will be with me. Jesus did more than he asked. In his darkest hour, he's been beaten and abused and he's hanging on the cross and he's suffering and dying and he's physically exhausted and he's still remembers why he's on the cross. He's on the cross dying to save people. He's still he's on the cross dying to save people in his sins, including this criminal. Including this criminal. Jesus pulls himself up and he struggles for another breath and he, he saves this criminal. 
And that bothers some people that I just said that. Because we don't want Jesus to save this criminal. We, we, I mean, th- th- that really messes with our theology because our theology says one plus one equals two. Our theology says you do one, two, three, four, five, and you're saved. And th- this criminal doesn't follow the right equation and it bothers us. This man doesn't have anything to offer Jesus. In his life, he stood for everything that was wrong. His entire life is one of standing in the wrong. But not today. Not today. He stands for what is right. And he stands for who is right. In fact, no one stood for Jesus up to this point. They brought in false witnesses who didn't stand for Jesus. Peter didn't even stand for Jesus. He denied him three times. The followers, the believers at the cross didn't stand for Jesus. But this condemned criminal takes a stand and he says to the other criminal, no more, stop. This man's done nothing wrong. He stands for Jesus. This guy has nothing to offer Jesus on this day. I mean, he can't do anything for Jesus. He's on the cross. He can't get down off the cross and go do anything for Jesus. He has nothing to offer Jesus this day except his mouth and his heart. And that's what he did. He took a stand and he spoke and he made a request and he honored Jesus honored the request. I mean, this guy didn't have a prayer. Actually, that's all he had. A prayer. You know why I think we struggle with this criminal? We struggle with Jesus honoring this, this request of this criminal. It, it, mess, it, it messes with our theology. In our opinion, this man doesn't deserve to be saved his entire life has been one of rebellion and we we have thoughts about deathbed death cross confessions i mean if this guy's going to make a last moment we we even question whether he was sincere we struggle because (laughs) we struggle because we get nervous in the presence of grace I think we think it's unfair that Jesus saved this guy. I think we even question whether this man was really even saved. In fact, I've listened to church people my whole life who are really more interested in sending people to hell than they are getting people to heaven. Many people have taken great pride telling others they won't be saved. I mean, you have, you, we have to ask ourselves this question. We have to. Does it bother you that God would willingly save a crucified crook in his last hour as much as he would me and you? Again, I think we struggle because we feel compelled to. We've got to explain it. We've got to explain salvation. We've got to define who gets saved because this criminal wasn't saved the way we think he should have been saved. And it's not the way we think people ought to be saved. So we feel obligated to have some kind of explanation in the midst of grace. And we feel obligated to have an answer. And some people will even say, because we have to have an answer, we've got to explain this somehow. I mean, well, of course he didn't have to be baptized. Jesus hadn't died yet, so people didn't have to be baptized. 
which is absolutely incorrect theology because John was baptizing. He baptized Jesus. Yeah, they were baptizing. I mean, why, why didn't Jesus just say, buddy, somehow you're going to have to get down off that cross and you're going to have to find someone to baptize you because you've got to be baptized because that would make our theology better. For some reason in our world of critiquing everything, we have to make this make sense and it doesn't make sense. Grace doesn't make sense. Look in the mirror. This thief found salvation at the cross. It wasn't by works. And done any. It, it wasn't by church attendance. He'd probably never been. It, it wasn't by his good deeds. He was a thief. This thief found salvation the same way everyone finds salvation, the same way God has been saving people and is still saving people. He was saved by grace through faith. Folks, that's the only way we'll be saved, by grace. You want to know what baptism is? Baptism is the desperate plea of a convicted criminal asking God to do something. Baptism is the desperate plea of a ruined sinner asking God to do something. When we're baptized, we're making a plea to God, God, will you please do something with my life? Baptism's not about what we do. Baptism is all about what God does. This man did not deserve to be saved. Just like me and you. Just like me and you. We're more like this criminal than we want to admit. Ruined sinners. Listen, folks, you, you won't go to heaven because you read through the Bible. You won't go to heaven because you, you, you attend the right church. You won't go to heaven because you feel like you're the most accurate. You won't go to heaven because of your good deeds. There's only one way to get to heaven. And here's the way. It's through Jesus dying on the cross. Period. And Jesus had the weight of your sins and my sins on the cross and He took our place and died in our place because of our transgressions. And just like this criminal, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved by grace. You want to know the real story on the cross that day? You want to know the real story of this criminal that day? You want to know your story on the cross that day? Is that salvation is the result of grace. That's why Paul writes, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's the gift of God. So let me, let me wrap up. Let me make a few quick points. Number one. We're all saved by grace. We're all saved the same way, by grace. It's the only way that we're saved. I mean, think about it. You, you, don't answer this. Would you have picked this criminal to be saved? Not sure I would. But here's the good news. If God wants that guy in heaven, I feel pretty good He wants me and you. You want to know how that happens? It happens by grace. I mean, think, think about this. One day in heaven, we're going to be walking down the streets. And there's going to be me and you and this former criminal. 
because we're all saved by grace. Number two, death is not the end. Death is not the end. Even this criminal knew death was not the end. Even this criminal knew there was something more. And he asked Jesus for something more. Death is not final, and grace is the only way to face death. Number three, my favorite two words in this entire second statement. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul writes in Philippians, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't know what's on the other side of death. I don't know where the other side of death. I don't know where heaven is. I don't know where, what heaven looks like. I don't know what we're going to be doing in heaven. But I know one thing. Jesus will be there and we will be with Him. With Christ. Paul writes in Thessalonians to people who were worried about those who had died. Brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died, who have fallen asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will join them, and then we will be with Him, with Jesus forever. Isn't that something? The the first guy Jesus takes with him on the other side of eternity is this criminal. He stops death long enough to save yet one more person. This thief asked to be remembered and he got so much more. He got salvation. Which makes me ask, what are you asking God for? What are you asking God for? So that opening question, if you knew you were going to die, what would you say? Here's what you need to say. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I put my faith and trust in Him. Because Scripture says that we need to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We need to repent and change directions. And we need to be baptized, the first statement, for the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provided for us at the cross. And just like the criminal on the cross, it doesn't have to make sense. It's just called obedience. It's called putting your trust in God. Listen, folks, don't just ask Jesus to remember you. Ask Jesus to save you. We offer the invitation of Jesus today. It's His invitation. It's not ours. It's not to join this church. It's not to do anything that we do as a church. It's to follow Scripture because we believe that you need to be baptized. When you're baptized, you come into contact with the blood. This liquid grave right here, you're putting your trust as a criminal, as a thief, as a ruined sinner saying, God, you know, this really doesn't make sense to me, but I trust because I read in Scriptures, I trust that you're going to wash my sins away. If you've never done that, can I encourage you to do that? You don't have to do that on a Sunday morning. You don't have to do that in front of a bunch of people. You can come up here in the middle of the week with just your family, with one or two people. You can have anybody you want baptize you. But listen, when you're baptized, you come into contact with the grace of God. Can I encourage you to do that today as we stand and sing?